Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and teacher of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean, and Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area. And we are going to continue on in our series of going through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as they are referred to. And we have arrived at the Fifth Commandment that reads, only with slight differentiation between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So we'll read Deuteronomy 5 since it's the longer version. But it says this, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you so that your days may be long and it may go well with you. That's the addition of Deuteronomy 5, and it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And and, and so what has often been pointed out, this is the first commandment, talking about your your father and mother. uh, This is the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that actually comes with a purpose, okay? Uh, In the previous commandment on the Sabbath, we got a reason, we got sort of the cause, but this time we get a purpose. So observe the Sabbath day because of God's creation and because of his redemption of you. But here it says, honor your father and mother so that your days may be long and you, and things may go well for you in the land that the Lord is giving you. So there's a promise connected to this. Um, that's significant. So why this? We, we're, we're making a shift from things dealing with the Lord specifically and how we relate to the Lord. So he's our God alone. Have no other idols. Don't take his name in vain. Observe his day, his Sabbath day. And now we're having a switch from the human divine relationship. Uh, we don't want to make this too fine of a point, but it's still a point. That to a person-to-person relationship. Now it's talking about how we deal with people around us, particularly our fathers and our mothers. Tommy, let me start with you. Can you talk us through why begin with honoring the father and the mother? What, what, what's the significance of the Ten Commandments moving to honoring of authority, particularly parental authority? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting for so many for so many reasons. I mean, the word honor is one that I, I'd love to talk about. And the nature of kind of like that that movement from the horizontal, our relationship with God to the to the vertical, our relationship with one another, I think that's um, um, interesting. As you put it, the 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 purpose statement. Um, Paul, of course, when he does his household code in Ephesians, he calls this the first commandment with a promise. But uh, to your question and like the specifics of it, why? I'm just going to re-ask the question. I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to re-ask it. Like why? Why father and mother? It's interesting to me when we have this shift to kind of the relationship that constitutes us as human beings and the obligations we sustain to those relationships. That the first relationship mentioned, in fact, the paradigmatic relationship, the only. A specific relationship maybe that's that's singled out here is the relationship between children and parents between father and mother you know that god doesn't move from kings and princes to governors and you know he doesn't go from the the tip top of society on down he he starts with i think what is that most basic 
of human relationships, most fundamental of human relationships, the relationship between father, mother, child, the family, as as we sometimes call it. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that the family is so key in the kind of socio-religious framework that the Ten Commandments are laying out for us. It's our relationship with God, and then it switches over to this family relationship. And there's got to be there's got to be hints of covenant back there. I mean, we know yeah. that uh, you know God when he enters into covenant with his people, he regularly use, uses family language, both parent and child. Uh, you know, when he's called, when, when he goes to, to Moses and, and, and gives Moses his marching orders with Pharaoh, he says, go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let him come out to the desert and worship me. You know, that's kind of interesting that God would have this kind of familial relationship with the whole people. You know, sometimes kings might have that kind of relationship, but you don't see this with God and his whole people calling them a son. So there's yeah. kind of a covenantal you know, thing back there. And of course, that shows up throughout the Old Testament, this father-son language, and as well as the husband and wife language, which we're going to come to in two commandments. But this, you know, the, there's something covenantal there, definitely. And also it's it, it probably emanates out of that in some way, but the fact that the family is sort of a key building block of Israelite society. Um, you know, that this is not just about doing your chores around the house. This is about participating in the household and participating in the tribe and participating in the kingdom, right? The kingdom of Israel. And and it's kind of a building block to all of that. To to what extent is that unique? Like, like in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, how, how, how often is that singled out as a in, in, in a structural or systematic way, the, the importance of the family or, or the, yeah, the family un, unit? No, that's a really good question. So I, your family does play a role. And it's true that if you go into other, you know, Semitic cultures, at least, you'll see like the words for Av or Abu, you know, father um, being used not to merely talk about parents, but to talk about authorities and ancestors. And there's some importance there. One thing that's interesting, and this is something that's been, this is kind of recent on the ancient Near Eastern stages, we're really not sure how law codes worked in the other ancient societies. We don't really know. For instance, we have Code of Hammurabi, and for many years we just assumed that, oh, then lawyers of the ancient of ancient Mesopotamia were using Hammurabi in court cases. And you know, it slowly became evident that like we actually have no evidence of any of that. So we don't know how much these were used to sort of legislate society. But we do see that in the Ten Commandments, and we do see that in the Deuteronomic laws, that you have prophets who are coming in and they are administering these laws to the people. Right now. So with that said, the thing that's unique here is the idea of a deity entering into a covenant relationship with his people. That's, that's unique. That's unique to the Bible. And you have kings doing it with other, with other smaller kings and that kind of thing, but you don't see this kind of suzerain vassal treaty type setup where someone walks out and says, I I will be a father to you and you will be like a son. You don't see that between a deity and his people. And that's totally unique here, which might point out why is this, why does this show up in the big grand summary of the laws for Israel? And it's because this is really central to how they think about their relationship to God. You know, speaking from the perspective of like pastoral ministry, I think that this commandment 
striking given like everything we've shared so far because it gets at basic dynamics of life that when these dynamics are lost, I've noticed people just go awry. And so like the first four commandments, I think they establish this dynamic of what we uh, refer to as creator creature distinction. What's the most important, I think, distinction in life as we understand God is God and we are not. But then as we continue to progress, we see that God is a God of order and every person is called to, you might say, live with a proper view of authority and specifically on the most basic level towards parents, right? And I just think it's interesting that, granted this is anecdotal, but in general, like the people I, I've come across with that are not able to, I don't wanna say function properly in society, but they just have a lot of relational issues. Much of it I have noticed does always stem back to their relationship with their parents. You know, I don't wanna overstate this, right? But there is something here about understanding who we are as people, that we are called to submit to the proper, you might say, dynamics that God has established. And so uh, it is interesting. I don't know what, how you guys feel about this, but when you look at Christian literature from the 80s, 90s, or past like 20 years, there was a lot of emphasis on like personal piety expressed, especially in terms of like daily devotion. But when you look at, especially the New Testament, there's a lot of emphasis on submission, you know, submitting to authority and learning how to do it. Just one more just anecdotal observation I've had is, you know, I've officiated weddings now for over 20 years. And this has been an interesting trend. So originally in the vows, at least towards uh, the wife, you know, it's uh, do you promise in the presence of God and these witnesses to be a loving, devoted and um, submissive wife, right? In the past five, 10 years, I've been asked repeatedly and explicitly to um, remove that part because the idea of submission has become like a dirty thing. And I think that's gonna come at a tremendous cost to us as just people. Paul, I was wondering, like, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I've found, you know, my observations are, are, are similar, like, but I also think about a lot of the people that just come out of broken families, right? Like it's not that the it's sometimes it's the parents and a failure to submit to the parents. Sometimes it's the kids and the, and the parents are actually just not good parents. So, so how, like when that family unit is dysfunctional for whatever reason, like beyond ordinary dysfunctional, but just uh, challenging suffering levels of dysfunction, you know, how do, how do we go about pastoring folks in those situations and, and, and seeking healing and all of those, those kind of things? Any pastoral advice there? It's a very real question. That's a, especially, I don't, well, you know, I deal with many people who are second generation immigrants and they did suffer a lot of parental abuse and neglect. And so it is, I think, interesting on the one hand that the Bible doesn't condition our honoring the parents based on their performance. It's more just what the structure that God has established. But having said that, I think there's wisdom to, let's say for instance, your father has been abusive for like all your life. Uh, there is, I think, wisdom to creating distance, but still being able to honor the father. So like a very concrete example is, let's say you had a father that regularly uh, hit the mother, 
and then just, you know, abuse the children in different ways, verbally, you know, physically and all of the above, right? Do I think that it is becoming of a Christian if the father reaches out and says, hey, I want to have a relationship with you in the last 20 years of my life? I don't think necessarily it's wise to be, okay, you know, um, like, let's be, let's reconnect again. But let's say that the same father is now like uh, without a home or is unable to meet his basic needs, right? Regardless of how he quote unquote performed as a father, I think part of honoring him is providing for his basic needs while remaining at a distance, right? And then also when you counsel people to help them to understand how much of their relationship to authority has been shaped by their family upbringing. I think it's just helpful to keep people honest. And so like a very common theme that we've come across is uh, people that have had bad relationships with their fathers just generally do not trust anyone in authority, right? And helping them work through that, you know, pastorally has been really helpful because the other option is, isn't good either, where you're just like, I, have, I, I don't want to have any relationship with my parents. And also I'm not going to trust anyone, but that's not possible because in the end, then you're just going to trust yourself. And we've been working through this in the women's Bible study, like in the book of Judges, that's another way of saying being wise in your own eyes. And the Bible just says that leads to disaster. But it's a great question. It's messy. But I think it's worth noting that, again, the commandment doesn't say honor them if they are honorable. It's honor them because of the way God has established society and the family. This is why I think taking a look at the Westminster Larger Catechism is so useful because it, it really shows that this commandment isn't just about those who are inferior submitting to those in authority or the children to the parents but rather this also shows us that those in authority are accountable to god as well that this gives responsibilities and accountability to those in authority to the parents that if you are parents yes children have to give you honor that is due to you but parents also have to be performing in a becoming way they have to act honorably and one of the things that the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, sorry, the larger catechism actually says is that the parents have to make sure that they conduct everything so that God gets the glory, that they are getting a kind of subordinate authority. They're not getting the same kind of authority as God's authority. So their authority is always in the Lord under the obedience of God's law. And so even though it's kind of a scary commandment to say to people who've had these sorts of, you know, toxic relationships that they've had maybe with their parents or other authorities, it's a good reminder to tell people that, hey, actually, this gives obligations to those in authority as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and making that distinction between honoring someone because of the role that the Lord has given parents, you know, or any people in positions of authority, and Therefore, making being able to make the distinction between that and then kind of like just completely doing whatever they say or something like this relationship does not undermine your relationship with God or what you know about truth or what you know about love and charity. And that's very, I mean, that's easier said than done. It's very hard if you've had a toxic relationship with a parent or an abusive relationship with a parent to come out of that and say, well, I still honor the role of the parent, you know. But I just recognize that my parents did something wrong or my authority did something wrong. And that is that is hard. And it's, it's complicated because it's dealing with the reality of, of a, a godly, a godly structure, which is structure of family in light of a fallen world. And the same thing to go to Westminster, the same thing happens when you think about the state. You know, I was just reading, just doing some prep for uh, a sermon coming up. And I was 
uh, opened up, uh, I'll give credit to Oscar Coleman for making this point, but it's really interesting. He starts his book on Christianity and the state by saying it's hard to say what the view of Christianity's view of the state is, right? What the view of the state is. Because you both get Romans 13 that is, says honor the principalities, and then you also get the reality of the fact that the governing authority that is over you is also going to be the one that oppresses and persecutes you, right? And yet honor them, Romans 13, and yet they're babble, right? You know, they're going to be the ones who come and persecute you. And it's complicated because uh, the authority does come from God. God gives worldly authorities, their authority, any authority that they have that's rightly owned is because it comes from God. And yet at the same time, in light of sin and abuse, we recognize that that authority can be abused and will be abused. Mm -hmm. it, it, it reminds me of the relationship in the family because none of us, I'm reminded of this daily in the way that Paul just reminded us, but I'm reminded of this, you know, just as a, as a pastor and a professor as well. None of us come from functional families. Everybody's got dysfunction in their families. So we all have tasted this in a very personal way and at varying levels, right? And yet we can still find hope in the fact that this system is ordained by God and there is opportunity for life in it. And there's opportunity for healing and reconciliation and yet not overstating the claim of something like this that, that then therefore leads you to say, and therefore do whatever the governing authority tells you to do or do whatever your parent tells you to do because you are cognizant of God's holiness and his righteousness. And you, uh, you apply that even to these authorities and they'll be judged accordingly. I, I think that's one of the reasons I really like the word honor here. I mean, it, it's such a robust word, one that can shift it doesn't shift its meaning per se, but its application, its intent, its its implications as the nature of the relationship changes. So, of course, here we've got honor your father and mother. And, you know, even as that relationship, you know, the, the relationship between parent and child, you know, if, if you've raised kids, you know that that relationship shifts over over time. When they're young, they need to not cross the street just because you told them that they should not cross the street by themselves, like just period. And it's a, it's a, but as they kind of shift and grow older, you're teaching them wisdom um, and they, they show you honor, not by uncalculating obedience, but by listening and uh, acquiring the wisdom that you're, you're putting down and, and all that kind of stuff. So you know, even within that relationship, the nature of honor shifts. And I, I go to, you know, first Peter two, which is another spot where, where honor is central. Uh, it opens with be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Um, but then that, that paragraph closes, honor everyone. And I love that. I, like the basic relational tie or the re basic relational obligation that I have to any other individual that I come in contact with is that of honor. And that's showing them glo the glory appropriate to that relationship. Tommy, that's a really important insight to remember because we are always in relation to one another. We're, we're created in such a way where these social relationships really do define who we are. And again, the one with our parents is very defining. And you're right. Honor is a very robust word. It's, it's a word that has sort of weighty connotations. And I want to ask the question here, but what do we do when we have sort of cultural expectations embedded in the word honor? What does it look like to honor your parents? 
given that differing parents in differing social locations have differing expectations for what honor might look like. So when I led a paideia group a couple of years ago on Luther's catechism, and he covered this commandment, and he talked about submitting to the parents and so on, that really freaked out some people in our congregation, because parental authority in Asia is very overreaching to the extent that, well, obviously you wouldn't follow them here, but, but to the extent that they would demand for you to follow one particular religion over another, um, or even in some less extreme, but still quite heavy cases where they would actually demand that even after you get married, you have to live next door where they have the keys to your house and they can enter anytime they want. And it's really their property and so on. And unless you follow that kind of um, command, they would consider you not obeying them, not honoring them. Whereas I feel like in the West, oftentimes you know, honoring your parents after you are starting your own family, there's this principle of leaving and cleaving, right? Where you're now, your new family structure now, it's a new family unit. And so you have sort of the freedom to, to create your own family culture. Whereas again, here, so much of the cases, it's more like you're extending your family when new families arise in the families, rather than creating new family units, you're really just enlarging your family unit. And really, if the grandfather or the great-grandfather is still alive, they're really the ones in authority over everyone. And we have to give due honor to him by obeying him. So what does it look like to honor people, given these realities of cultural diversity? Right, you know, I think uh, in a lot of ways you answered your question. Like, we have to, like, uh, think about context. And this is why I think you all agree, like, with each year... I'm like so thankful God has provided the genre of wisdom in the Bible because no situation is alike. Uh, but I think at the very least, this is worth noting and it might be interesting to hear what Scott has to say about this in terms of the Old Testament, but definitely in the New Testament, honor is almost always material, tangible. You know, and so we tend to think of honor as, you know, in Asian culture, if you greet someone that is older, you know, you, you tend to bow or there's a honorific ending to the language and you use that. And while that's, that is tangible in some sense, right? Like it is striking that for instance, uh, in First Timothy 5, uh, Paul says, honor those who teach, right? And then immediately he talks about what we would call compensation, right? And this is why when I was saying before, let's say you have a father that was abusive and, um, and in a lot of ways, he might not merit your respect, your personal respect, if he requires like a home, food, things like that. I think, you know, um, we're called to honor them and provide for them physically in that way. I think related to what Gray was saying is like the book of Acts is helpful because when the apostles are told to, you know, be silent, no longer speak the gospel, their response is very basic. They said, well, you know, overall, we should try to submit to those in authority. But when it comes to violating an explicit command in the Bible, then mm. we have to obey God instead of men. So I think, for instance, if I had a uncle that said I had to come and worship with him at some, I don't know, Buddhist temple, then, you know, that actually for me is not that ambiguous. And in terms of how he might respond to that, that's like outside of my control. But if there are things like, for instance, I don't know, even like, let's say um, if I were to invite him to a family meal, and he asked, hey, you know, I prefer not to say grace before the meal, right? I don't know, like, if I would die on a hill for that, you know, like, and so I do think that where the Bible is explicit, we need to maintain that. But outside of that, I think as Christians in general, it's, it's our calling to, you know, bear the burdens of the weaker. 
And so like, if like my parents asked me for a car, I might buy them like, let's say like, I don't know, like a, a moderately decent sedan, but I don't think it's my burden to buy them a luxury car per se. I don't think the Bible talks about that. Yes, a Prius will do, great. You're not gonna <laughs> buy them a Tesla, right? I mean. I am because I will take it over eventually. <laughs> so that you can inherit if, it. If you inherit it's an it. an investment. <laughs> I think honor, it's one of those concepts that it's both, like so many concepts in scripture, there, there's both an objective reality to it. And I really like what you mentioned there, uh, Paul, like it's it's material, it's tangible. And and, and to some extent, it's also, uh, at least in many, uh, in, in many cases, it's public. It's a way of publicly or semi-publicly, like within the spheres of our relationships, ascribing to someone a kind of glory appropriate to that, to that relationship. And so much of that is objective and guided by scriptural principles, but a lot of it is also cultural and subjective, right? That we show, uh, so, you know, I, th I think about etiquette, so much of etiquette, you know, there's no moral command where to put, put the fork when you're setting the table or what to wear to, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, a, a friend's dinner or something like that. But there's etiquette, there's protocol that is really designed to show honor. And that's, those are culturally determined. But, uh, you know, I think there's so much kind of pushback against etiquette um, in, in our circles and etiquette changes and shifts with time. And, um, you know, to some extent, no one cares about where the fork is placed on the dining room table anymore. But it is a way of showing honor to those to those around you. At its best, etiquette isn't just a set of social rules. It's uh, it's honoring those around you in a way that ascribes to them public glory. I don't know, Tommy. I think taking off your shoes when you enter into someone's home is natural law. Don't think that's culturally relative. <laughs> okay. Well, I've seen what I've seen what my dog does in the yard. So you might be right, Gray. Fair enough. Right? You don't know where those shoes have been, man. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you talk about the honoring too. And I, in my background, I was raised in, a, in, of course, a Navy family. My dad was in the Navy and was very great, I think, at insulating our family from the rigors of military life and all those things. But you still got to see it a good bit. And there was this real, this is a real emphasis on honoring rank and honoring chain of command, regardless of who the person is. And it's understood that when you salute, you're not saluting like, you know, Tim Jones or something like that. You're saluting the rank that's on his uniform, right? And that creates a kind of, um, it's interesting, it both creates a, a, an order which can be healthy and also can be abused. Absolutely. You know, but when it's abused, it's not because the order was wrong. It's because of the person not living up to the position that they had been called to. And I think for those, again, not to, I know we go, I, I, I hesitate to go to abuse and toxicity right away because this is not assuming that, but I think for those who do wrestle with toxic leadership or toxic parents, you know, or abuse, 
one of the things, one of the comforts that you find in a command like this is that their abuse is heightened, that the wrongness of what they've done is heightened in light of the relationship and in light of the, the honor that their position deserves, right? And it can give you comfort knowing that that's one of the reasons why it's so wrong, you know, when leaders are abusive. One of the reasons it's so wrong is because of their position, of their standing. You know, and the same is true. So much more families. I remember one of my uh, professors saying, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why child abuse is so terrible is that it blasphemes the father in heaven. You know, we think of maybe child abuse or being a bad father as just kind of like us, maybe, you know, particularly if it's like verbal abuse or something, something that's somewhat commonplace. That's not that bad. And yet he says, but this is because of the position that the father holds as a as a sort of reflection of the father in heaven it's it's actually a kind of blasphemy you know so parents fathers in particular beware of how you raise your children you know that you image the god who is our father in heaven you know and that to me actually shows how something like this can actually give comfort and strength to a person who's struggling with an abusive or an oppressive relationship yeah, and I think understanding the facts of abuse shouldn't lead us, therefore, to denigrate the reality that there are still authorities that have been embedded in human natural right. life, and that these are, these are God-ordained realities that are actually not only inevitable, but, but also good. So I wonder how um, we might respond, you know, when I'm taking a look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, I'm seeing the language of inferiors, superiors. We are now living in a culture, especially in the West, that really is cognizant about these abuses of power, and we're moving towards a very egalitarian-minded uh, society where equality is the order of the day, where we are wanting to make sure that there is equal opportunity for everyone, even at times, equal outcome, things like that. I wonder how might we respond to, to those who basically say that if this is what the Bible teaches, does it therefore erase equality? Does it therefore not prioritize equality? Is this an, an inherently unjust social structure that the Bible is actually propounding for us here? How might we respond to those kinds of objections? I mean, I, I mean, my first thought is that the Westminster Confession is such a wonderful exposition of this commandment, particularly in that regard. It, it uses the language of inferior and superior and, and so does scripture be subject to every institution and, and these kinds of things. But I, it's important that both confessionally and biblically, we recognize that the starting point, like the ethical starting point for how you treat others isn't hierarchy. It isn't a, a, a kind of anthropological authoritarianism as if people are ranked. The starting point is, you know, both in first Peter two and in Ephesians 5, where the language of submission is used, it is, the starting point is, you are all firstborn sons of the Heavenly Father. So anthropologically, uh, scripture begins with a kind of egalitarian principle. We are all, our, our status before the Father is firstborn son, because we are in Christ. And so we're obligated to, first and foremost, honor everyone. But then over top of that is laid this kind of these more uh, hierarchical kind of relationships. Um, I, I'm not crazy about the word hierarchy there, but 
these the different kinds of relationships that constitute us in which different ways of honoring one another is due. And I love how the confession kind of exposits that. So there's both obligations of the superior to the inferior, you know, that I have to use my authority and my position to bless uh, the inferior and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's good. I, you know, the order has to come from our creatureliness, right? I, I mean, I'm yeah, that's a good way to put it. This. Order has to come from our creatureliness, our finitude. As a result, we're in need of order. The superiority and inferiority is not some kind of ontological thing amongst humans, right? Because as humans, we are image of God, and therefore all our all our owed honor and dignity and respect. But you can't. You, you can't have society, you can't have flourishing without there being some orderliness to it. And we would all be very quick to also point out, of course, you also can have great oppression and a great, great abuse. You know, the Nazi system was very orderly, right? So order can be used both for good and for evil. And yet that doesn't make order itself, right? It doesn't, doesn't take us out of our finitude of being creaturely. And so, yeah, it seems to me that that this the order is go- is something that is going to emerge because of our own limitations. Without it, there's only anarchy and chaos. However, okay, so then once you take the order and you and we start applying this, the you know this biblical view of 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 how a family and a society can work together in effective ways that bring about human flourishing. Then we start talking about things like, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, superiors and inferiors. But that's not, again, I think as soon as we hear those words, we think of superiority complex, right? An inferiority complex. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about an orderly relationship that is built off of justice, mutual love, and respect. You know, our discussion just reminds me of like, um, when I was in seminary, Carl Truman would regularly say that the heresy is usually born out of taking taking one truth in the scripture and just running with it and neglecting everything else. And so this contemporary impulse of saying, hey, we're all equal, you know, that's true. Like, and I love the way Tommy just explained it. You know, we all have inherent dignity because uh, we were made in the image of God. But, you know, it, it is, I, I just think it's striking that a lot of contemporary people dismiss relig- religion as being narrow-minded. But when you look at Christianity, it's so comprehensive and complex, and it does incorporate all these nuances. So we don't have to think in terms of either or, like, oh, wait, so is it that we all have, or we're all equal, and that there's no authority, or is it just, you know, whereas the Bible says, yes, like, we are equal. And yet within that um, dynamic or within that reality, God has also established, um, you know, structure so that we might flourish. I think that's important to keep in mind that Christianity is not reductionistic and it's such a liability when you take just one truth and you run with it. And and it's so practical too, like that just informs the way I think about parenting, right? That uh, yes, my children need to obey and submit, but not because I'm more important and not because I necessarily know better or I'm smarter or I'm bigger or I'm older or whatever it might be better in some way. It's actually my authority over them is constrained by the fact that they are real people in the image of God and beloved by the Father no less than me. And so I'm obligated to train them up because of the unique relationship that I have 
that has been given to me from the father and they are obligated to submit because of their end of that relationship and that, that those are both constrained and both grounded in the fact that we are image of god firstborn children beloved by the father the son and the spirit this is so life-giving this i mean as we're times we're talking about this this biblical teaching about human authority in light of divine authority is so life-giving and so healthy I mean, obviously, I'm biased as a teacher of the scripture, so you know this is this is what I like. But as I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, this is so. Um, it protects the weak when operate when, when when performed biblically. It protects the weak. It gives it gives uh, it gives protections to those who cannot defend themselves. It gives not just protections, but you know, as if there's something to be tolerated. But they're honored, and they're respected and loved. It's one of those things, I mean, I'm struck by Christianity, particularly when you consider it in light of other belief systems. I'm struck by, in the biblical faith, how clear and open the scripture is about its teaching on these things. It's not hidden. It's not about tricking people into doing what you want. It's not about kind of manipulation. It's very open about the teaching and the principles that's going to inform its decisions and the, th- and the decisions that we make. And it's just so life-giving in that way. And I just, as, as we're talking about this, I'm even thinking this is so good. It's something that we could reflect on over and over and over again and should have leadership conferences about, and we should be shouting it from the mountaintops because this is so important, you know? And it's, and it's not that Christians don't fail in these regards too. Obviously they do, but when they do, it's because they're straying from this, I think, kind of basic biblical teachings that we've been talking about about honoring and respecting others, about living in light of God's sovereign divine kingship, right? And about, you know, doing these things in a way that is charitable and honorable and, uh, and, and, and reflective of our position before God. You know, um, Tommy would know this best, given he's the expert in Hebrews, but Hebrews ends up in a very interesting way. You know, Hebrews really is talking a lot about persevering in the faith. And if you read Hebrews, like, so what would be the popular uh, response to the question, what must I do to endure? What must I do to, like, maintain the faith, right? And I just always found it interesting that the author of Hebrews, he ends in a way that might surprise many, like, contemporary Christians today. And he basically focuses on the relationship that believers should have with leaders, with the leaders in their church. And he basically says, you know, you should submit to them and you should make their service the delight. You know, and I just think that, whereas again, not to harp on this too much, but it's interesting to see so many believers focus more on my daily devotion. And I'm not against it. I just want to be clear about this. Whereas what the Bible actually says is if you want to endure, you need to have a proper disposition to those in authority. And so that's something I've been trying to think about in terms as a pastor, how to teach authority, given that we live in a very suspicious, cynical, and to be honest, like a very prideful, like um, society where people would prefer just to listen to their inner voice, you know, and so I don't know, Tommy, you're the expert in Hebrews. Uh, maybe you can correct everything I just said. I think it's beautifully said. It's wonderful because, you know, then as, as Hebrews gets into, it's, it's a lot of 
theology of perseverance. And then when it gets to actionable items, its first thing is let brotherly love continue. It's that social dynamic that happens in being the people of God that sustains us. I think, well said, Paul. All right, folks. Any, like, any parting thoughts? It was a lot of good content. A lot of good stuff. Agreed. I think I'm just going to stare out my window and reflect a bit. <laughs> the cavode, the cavode of cavading of uh, honor is, is shining on your face. Mm, mm. Thanks, thanks to everybody for not going into how glory really means weight and honor and all that stuff. You did a good job on steering clear of that discussion. Um, Until now. Maybe we can close on uh, just this one thought. Like, uh, this is one of the things actually my church members have taught me, which is really um, a gift as a pastor. Uh, But we should not confuse submitting with agreeing. And so what I mean by that is like submission almost assumes that you don't agree, but that you're going to follow, you know, whereas when you're going with the program because you agree, it's not really submission. I think one of the things that it's really important to keep in mind is submission is just really like, okay, I don't agree with this uh, decision that those in authority have made but this is a secondary issue. And so I'm going to submit. I think again, that distinction is important for people to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a really important distinction to make. And I think it's something the young pastors and any person working in an organization, but I, I particularly see it with young pastors coming out of seminary and going into churches where uh, the senior pastor may be making decisions that the younger pastor doesn't agree with and yet still honoring their position in the church. And I'm, of course, again, not talking about abuse or, or, or you know, sinful behavior, but talking about just honoring up the position of the person who's placed over you and honoring the decisions that they make, even when you may have done, you may, maybe would do it in a different way. You know, I keep thinking back on the story of David and that period of time between his anointing, the Goliath account and the time when he's actually ratified as king of Israel, you know, and he knows that he's been set apart to be Messiah. And I'm not, I don't know how exemplar this is, but it's interesting to me that he's not censured for this and that he has multiple opportunities to take out Saul. And yet he doesn't because he says, I wouldn't raise my hand against God's anointed. Now, of course, we're talking about a Messiah situation there and all kinds of complicated things. But I've thought about that in terms of young people in an organization or in the case of the seminary, young pastors who go into church and think they've got all these great ideas. And maybe they even do have all these great ideas, you know, and yet need to still recognize the order, you know, and the the, the ordination that the Lord has put them in as a part of, you know, and the organization that they're within and being able to serve in their position and wait for the time that God may have called them to be the senior themselves, to be able to make all those decisions and, and to grow in the organization and to gain wisdom. But that's a, that's a complicated discussion. And again, as we talked about earlier, Paul, I think you mentioned wisdom literature, you know, each one of these situations is going to be different and that's where gaining biblical wisdom helps to be able to discern, okay, when is this something that needs to be opposed openly? And when is this something where I need to respect, even if I don't agree? 
you know, I need to show honor even if I don't agree with the, with the way, the direction that it's going. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, so much that we covered there. And it's something I want to go back and listen through again. Look forward to getting back together and continuing this discussion of the Ten Commandments. The next commandment we'll be taking up will be the Sixth Commandment that against murder. That is the positive respecting and honoring of human life. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation about the Ten Commandments, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends about the faculty podcast. If you want to know more about Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., go to rts.edu forward slash Washington, and you can learn more about us there. Thanks, as always, to Timo Sazo, our editor, producer, director, and friend. Thank you for all the work that he's doing to make us sound as good as we do on this podcast. So until next week, take care. You know, you're, you're developing a following in Korea. I don't know so, that. And uh, the biggest question is, how do you pronounce his last name? So I make up different renditions just for fun. So you're in touch with folks in Korea? Yeah. So my most recent one I said is Satanto. They're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's this fair. is the stuff That's that fair. like in, in, in 20 years, no one's going to know how to pronounce his name. And it's going to be because of Paul Jean. Yeah. I mentioned there was, it was a Korean student in Kampen who said, um, yo, your name is Grace Tanto. Are you related to Nathaniel Tanto? Is your brother? It was a Korean student. So more confusion now. <laughs> Koreans already think there's two of us. And now there's multiple Sutantos. Yeah, that guy's a jerk. Nathaniel. Yeah. Stick to Greg. Yeah. Who is that guy? I've had people say that about, ask me questions about N.T. Wright and how he differs from Tom Wright. <laughs> N.T. Wright, because I think he does all of his popular commentaries are Tom Wright. And the guy was, was putting, pitting the two against each other as if these were two scholars. Tom Wright paid for his kids' college. N.T. Wright didn't. That's right. That's right.